Of the designed objects that we interact with on a daily basis, our homes have perhaps the greatest influence on the way we live our lives. In the new series Home on Apple TV+, the creators investigate the ways that some of the world's most imaginative dwellings help their occupants reframe the way they live and the way they work. In this episode, we chat with Matt Weaver and Doug Prey, who are both executive producers for the show. Matt also produced several other notable documentaries, including Chef's Table and one of my favorites, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. In addition to directing several episodes of Home, Doug has directed or produced a number of documentaries, including Defiant Ones, and collaborated with Doug on the documentary Surfwise. We're always curious about how creative folks in different industries address challenging design problems. We asked Matt and Doug about how the subjects of home use their own stubbornness and resilience to push their projects forward, how constraints on location and material encourage creative solutions, and the common threads they see across creative disciplines. Enjoy listening to this episode from the comforts of your own home, and we hope it'll inspire you to think about the way that you might bring some of these mindsets and practices into your work. Doug Prey and Matt Weaver. Welcome to the Design Better Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So Eli and I are excited to talk to both of you today. You worked on the amazing docuseries called Home that's available on Apple TV+. If our listeners haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. Eli and I have found it very meaningful, especially as we're trapped in our homes and the world feels like it's turning upside down right now. It feels like a respite. It feels like a reconnection to the creative spirit that is present and it's all over the world and it's coming from lots of different diverse voices and diverse places. So it's a great series. Many of our listeners are in the digital product design space, but we found so many parallels of the creative process in the series. You know, the, the creative struggle of trying to see the world anew so we'd like to talk about some of those things and find those parallels because we think there are lessons for all creative people out there. So maybe let's start with seeing and being uh, learning to see in detail, which is something that we picked up on as we watched the series. The very first one created a space uh, to connect uh, in a more meaningful way, especially with their autistic adult child. And in that second episode, which was my personal favorite with Theaster Gates in the South Side of Chicago, who is a professional artist who's been successful and saw opportunity in his community to buy new buildings, to create community space, to rethink the idea of what it means to be home, what it means to be connected with the community. Could you talk to us about what you uncovered? Because to a certain degree, there's research leading you into each episode but there's also a lot of discovery. What, what did you discover from the subjects and how they see the world? Doug, I'll let you take that first. We always knew that this wasn't like a home garden how-to show. We knew it wasn't a luxury home show, like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous kind of thing. And I think it really became about what do people see in front of them? And what do they do with what they have? And what do they do with the problems they have in their family or their lives that your space and the design of your home and the way you live in the home and how the home feeds back to you, how that all works. And that might not have been so intentional from the beginning because it's a new show. So Matt was involved from day one. And so 
I think it evolved. It kind of became something that we started discovering that all of these people had a few things in common. And one of those things was this idea of, well, I have this problem and I want to solve it, but I don't want to just run away from it. I don't want to just bring in other outside things. I just want to, I want to get deeper into it. It's sort of this idea of leaning into problems rather than running away from them. It's only something that hit me later after we'd assembled all nine episodes and it kind of struck me and Matt and everybody, we're just sort of realizing that this is really about rejuvenation and that idea that you don't, you can solve problems with what you have in front of you. So whether it's raising an autistic child, whether it's improving the value and the belief in a neighborhood like the Esther Gates did, whether it's building a 3D home in Mexico, whether it's building your home on a toxic waste site like Chris Brown did in Austin, Texas. It's again, like lately, it's made sense to me. But that's how making films often is. You understand them quite well when you're finished. (laughs) And Doug, I think we found too that in most cases, it wasn't about throwing money at the problem. I think we have various subject matters. They all have different resources, but that's what I love about it. To your point that it was in Lifestyles Rich and Famous. It wasn't just, let's spend as much money as we can to fix these problems. Yeah. I mean, you knew that from the start, right? In a way, like, I mean, was that because you were there at the beginning and I wasn't, I came, I joined after a couple of episodes were made, but was that something you set out to do? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, as Doug said, we knew from the very beginning, this wasn't a all due respect HGTV. It wasn't one of those shows. It wasn't lifestyle, the rich and famous. We knew we were looking for something deep and emotional. I don't think any of us expected. I didn't, I didn't expect the series to be this emotional, for me personally, the, the interconnectivity through it all was family. And it's funny because Doug and I worked 10 years ago on a documentary about a family, uh, the, the documentary called Surfwise that Doug directed about a family that lived in a camper, which we sort of joke now that that could very well have been an episode of Home. But for, for me, uh, what I connected to is how the homes brought families together. And in many cases, as Doug said, the families had an issue or a problem that the home needed to help solve. So family is a huge part of the show for me. Maybe you could talk a little bit too about this idea of creative confidence was another thread that I saw running through many of the episodes where with the Bali episode in particular, it sort of reflected on the architect's childhood and how she used to create structures. And and it was reinforced to me recently because one of our quarantine projects here at home has been building this tree fort and I've been having my nine-year-old daughter come up and I've found like her ideas are so great. And I might've gone and done it all myself and just kind of presented it as gift, but it's so much richer to have her be a part of that process, part of the creative process. And it seems that in a lot of these projects, it's not only the architects and designers, but they're involving the community and other people that are going to be using these these homes or these spaces. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I love how Laura Hardy has almost like a childlike creativity. She's like, oh, well, why not? Like, why can't we do this? And it's just, that's a part of it is just being open, and that's true of any creative process, is the more open-minded you are and the more kind of almost childlike curiosity, I think, feels a lot of great creativity. And it's also just taking risk, not knowing, like having that this could fail. Anything that could abjectly fail is not necessarily the best thing to do, but sometimes you're you're in a good zone when you're trying things that nobody else has done or just seems silly or kind of outlandish. But I really like her spirit of 
it's like I was talking about rejuvenation, but it's, you could also call that investing in your community or investing in your land. And I don't mean financial, investing in an idea. I mean, she's a perfect example of, I think she says somewhere in the episode, something like, you know, all of the resources for this entire, it's like a palace, basically, you know, didn't exist five years ago. It's just the grass. It's just weeds. It's, it's, you know, it's bamboo. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Anu. There's an episode that's set in India. And her whole thinking of her entire rejuvenation process is investing in craftspeople and the people in her neighborhood who've been doing the same kind of handmade pottery or crafts or building supplies, just anything, but the same exact technology for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like nothing's changed. Whereas the obvious thing you think is like, oh, you need you need modern materials. You need this. You need that. You got to just, you need money and about, you just got to do all these things. And she's just like, well, actually, the way they've done it for, you know, many hundreds of years is actually still pretty amazing. And actually, it's beautiful. And so she can both celebrate that and give the community work and meaning and value and yet have something that's completely new and transcendent. In each case, if you, you could almost go through each and every episode and sort of see how somebody did that kind of reinvestment or going back in time to an old technology, but saying, well, wait a minute, this is, this is really, really important today. I like that idea. Matt, I want to talk also about Jiro because Jiro Dreams of Sushi is another documentary that you worked on. And I found a parallel. There's a, a passage in that documentary that it feels like it's very connected to the themes of, of the home series. Jiro's talking about a French chef, and I don't remember the chef's name, but uh, you know, Jiro's been at this for decades, just trying to make really good sushi and develop sensitivity. And he, and he still doesn't think he got it right. And he still doesn't think he's got it right, right? And he's talking about this French chef and he says, man, if I just had a palate right. like his. And I saw that same sensitivity in the, the India episode to Anu where she's you know, paying attention to how bricks are made and that that history is present. That it, it seems like all of these people have some sort of sensitivity, even the Sweden one, Doug, that you know, he had to fight to get clearance from the government to be able to basically recycle their own water. And he was cleaning that and so forth. Like, it's just all of these people around the world have this sensitivity to, mm -hmm. this is the way I wanna live life. This is the intentional way I wanna live life. And designers, this is, what, this is what we're all about, is about developing a sensitivity. What did you see as you were making the documentary? But also like, how have you personally developed that yourself? Because clearly we're taking this away because of your sensitivity in capturing these stories. That's a good question. It's so funny, Doug, because we didn't really talk too much about Jiro while we were making this. You know, Jiro is beautifully directed by our friend Dave Gelb, who also went on to create Chef's Table. And so I've been fortunate enough to work with him and work with Doug. Most of what I've learned in documentary filmmaking is from these two guys. But we didn't talk about that a lot or the other shows. We were really trying to do something different here. But I think that pursuit of excellence, which, by the way, you guys should see Surfwise because Doc Paskowitz has it, Jiro has it, many of the subject matters in our show have it. And again, I don't want to keep harping on it, but for me, how I personally connected to it was family. I remember in the middle of production on Jiro at some point, 
Dave Gelb had gotten back from Tokyo, but there was this aha moment. I don't know if it was Dave or the editor who said, this is a father-son story. This, this is a family story. This is not just a profile on the most respected sushi chef in the world. So that's when that movie turned. And I think for me, a lot of these episodes, especially Doug's two episodes, which are totally about family, and that's where it resonated. So it's funny, you bring up Jiro. We didn't really talk about it that much. Chef's Table probably got brought up more. And again, we wanted to try to do something different than that because that show is so incredible. But I think there are a lot of similarities between Jiro and the show. I think the thing that I think about along those lines is people don't just come up with art. They don't just come up with a new design. Everybody thinks like, oh, you just like in the middle of the night, you had this flash of inspiration and maybe a part of it is like that. It just comes to you. But everything great and everything worthwhile kind of comes from a problem. It's sort of a storytelling way of looking at it because you could say, well, all great stories are about conflict. All great stories, all drama is rooted in conflict. It's not just happy people coming up with brilliant ideas and that's the story because there's no, there's no drama there and that's not really how life is. And so I think whenever I approach a story and I was a, an executive producer in the series with Matt, but directed just two of them. So I think all the different directors who worked on Home, at some point you have to say, well, where did this come from? There's an origin story of what this design is and why why did somebody come up with it? And almost is always rooted in some kind of interesting thing. Like I love the story in, in Hong Kong where Gary Chang, he's lived in the same apartment for decades, just decades, literally as a child. <laughs> and like, because it was so cramped in his childhood and he was forced to stay in the living room in a cramped apartment with all these siblings and everything else. And he had to fold his bed out of the couch and you, you know, you're kind of going, Oh, that's kind of crazy. Like that was your whole childhood. And then look what he does with it. He takes that sort of problematic energy and he transforms it literally no pun intended into this transformer apartment. It's almost like he's never stopped doing that for this entire life. And even his, he's a, he's a well-known architect, so even his designs just make such good use of space. And I love finding those little triggers, you know, like I, I, I think people who are mavericks or eccentric, you know, designers or people have big ideas, there's always some source. And so for me, it always comes down to like, okay, what's driving this person? What are they trying to solve? What's the problem? What's the thing that is just pissing them off or just like, ah, I can't solve this. And it might've been from their childhood or something that's very current. But in every case, in all these cases, it's sort of like, okay, where did this come from? And I find that just fascinating. Um, and I'm sure it's true of all of the guests on your show is like, you're talking about people who have these design ideas, but it's always based in some human conflict or some, something wrong. Hey, Doug, I have a question on Sweden, which is, again, is a, one of the most popular episodes. What was his initial problem? And then when do you think he realized what this house was doing to the family? Because he didn't build that house because of his son, right? That's something that happened along the way where he, where he saw the impact the house was having on him. Yeah, ironically, he he did have one of those aha moments, like where he he was he just wanted to build like a three hundred year old style log cabin in the woods of Sweden. Yeah. I mean, that he just knew he wanted to do that, and he did. He set out about doing it, and it's this old style of cabin that you have no nails, and you can see them. You know, if you go to the history museum in Sweden, you see all these old cabins. So he just wanted to do that, but then he got bogged down, and like. 
it was rainy seasons and he it just he couldn't finish the home and he started getting frustrated and then he had two children not that <laughs> he had twins and not that that's a problem children are a great thing and so often actually can create further inspiration but he just kept trying to make this thing happen and it wasn't happening for some years and he kept building and struggling and then he had this idea because the rain was so bad and the winter was so bad love to put a greenhouse over because he'd seen it in a book he was like, oh, I'm going to put this greenhouse over this. And all of a sudden, everything started shifting. And as his, as the twins grew older and they identified that one of the twins, his son, was autistic, as he began trying to deal with that, it, 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 as anybody knows, it's, it's very difficult to be the parents of an autistic child. And as that continued, these two things kind of started coming together. He started realizing, wow. He and his wife, Rosemary, like, this home is doing something to this child. It's doing something better. And they kind of got more creative as they went on and just kept developing it. And the more it became a natural space inside the house as well as outside, the more they saw these very subtle but real benefits to the child. And that's just kind of amazing. So every story is different. I mean, it, some of these people started with a serious problem. Others like inherited a problem. But I do find that I really like tracing that kind of source of any good story. There's also a, a fascinating letting go moment in that episode, which I think is also a, a key insight in the creative process. I've heard Bob Dylan say, not in person, in interviews, that he can no longer write those songs that, it, that he began his career with, that they kind of passed through him. So it's like seeing the starting thread and then letting go and letting that pass through. And the father in the Sweden episode, he had that moment with his son where his son just said, you know, something to the effect like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not the son that you wanted. And it was just so touching, so heavy. And that father is, you know, he has this relationship with his son, but he also is, has this relationship with his family that is, you know, like this archetype of being a, a parent, a father is providing shelter, providing a home. And he was trying to create this space for his family. And you're right, it, like the greenhouse was solving a, an immediate problem of rain so he could build, but he had to kind of let go and realize that this thing that was a patch is actually the thing. That's the thread. And there's something deeper yeah. here. Yeah, it's a very profound moment. And we all have moments in our life where we have to accept. You have to accept your children. You have to accept your spouse or whoever you're living with. You have to accept your family, you know, accept everything. <laughs> and it, it's just for him, it just really came to a head where he just realized he was just trying so hard to be the father, the father with a plan and the house and everything's going right. to work out. And it just wasn't happening that way. So for him, it, it hit him later on that if he could just accept and all of a sudden, the kid kind of like came alive in his mind. It was like, oh, I've been trying to force you to be something that you're not. I'm sorry. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. 
That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Yeah, one other theme that we saw was this idea of uh, stubbornness and, and resilience, and certainly you see that in the Sweden episode, as Aaron spoke about earlier, with uh, trying to get their, their water cleaning system accepted by the city, but you also see it in the Malibu episode where they were affected by the fire and the structure wasn't damaged, but it seemed to, the resilience about rebuilding that community led them to some really interesting ideas. And maybe you talk about, you know, how stubbornness and resilience played into these different homes and the creation of them. In the case of the Malibu home, I mean, what's so interesting there, we're talking about recycling and rejuvenating and sort of looking what you have right in front of you is, they live in this very arid, well, anybody in Southern California, we live in an arid landscape generally, more or less. And what's crazy is that their biggest innovation isn't even the home they're in. It's actually was this whole idea of taking water out of air. And they have this system created to literally extract water out of air that they can then water their garden with and do other things. And that's almost this whole little separate side story, but it shows this dogged determination to make it work, to make stuff work. You know, their house is this eclectic, amazing (laughs) conglomeration of recycled Hollywood sets and materials. It's kind of just crazy where they, this space, it's, it's, it's called Xanabu which is a combination of Xanadu and Malibu, of course. But um, it's it's just this idea of like, I don't know how stubborn they are. I guess in a way they are, you know, but I think all these people are kind of stubborn. They just have this vision and back to honors. Like he's like, I know that I know the government isn't going to let me do this, but I'm going to win. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to force this to happen. And it's true all the way through. I mean, it's, I you know, I can think about all the other episodes as well as, People just determined to bring about their vision. The Astor might be the best example of that, given what he was trying to do, where he was doing. It wasn't Sweden. It wasn't Malibu. I'm glad you love that episode. We're really proud of it. But stubbornness and resiliency in the south side of Chicago, I think, is pretty amazing in terms of what he did. For all of his years, he talks about this in the episode of just seeing he could always tell which neighborhoods were going to be raised and which ones were going to be developed. And you could see when he used to be bused to school, he would like see the difference, the changing neighborhoods. And it always bothered him. Like, why can't my neighborhood be like this? Why can't my neighborhood be better and improving and being richer and attracting people, more people to have better lives. You know, it's such a simple wish. And it just comes from years of feeling put down or feeling like the neighborhood was neglected and ignored and like nobody wanted to invest in it. So his story, especially given, you know, what's going on in the country today is just without question, the most profound 
philosophical. Philosophically, it's the most profound episode of all of them. That one, and also, I, I really think the Mexico 3D home one, those two, those two episodes are a little bit different. It's not a single person who built their home that they live in. It's more of a neighborhood thing. It's more of a community thing. But this idea of building homes for people who live in really substandard housing out of 3D materials that could someday, hopefully very soon, be rapidly, you know, could rapidly build a neighborhood, that's very pertinent to today's world and what we need. I hope that at some point, Doug, I don't know if we could ever do it, but it sure would be. When you speak about those two episodes, like, God, I'd love to follow up right now. I'd love to see what the Astor's thinking based on the past couple of weeks and maybe to a lesser extent Mexico. But the Astor would be a really interesting interview today about his neighborhood. A powerful lesson in both those episodes is the community and how much we need each other. And if there's one thing that 2020 has taught me personally, it's that what's most important is connections, like relationships with one another, relationships with your family, of course, but more broadly relationships with your community. That's, that's how we survive. And man, Theaster Gates, like the community that he, he didn't build the community himself, but he certainly created the platform for that community to continue to grow and thrive and see itself in, in new ways. It was really yeah. astonishing. That's just it though. It's this idea. It's like, it's like an onion or something. It's like, if, if you start at the core of your personal needs and then maybe whoever is in your community, your immediate community, whether it's your family or whoever you're living with, and then it expands out to your actual, the land you're on. And it's this idea of constantly reinvesting and saying, wait, this can be a little better. Let's think harder and do better here. Let's think different to be, to quote a very Apple concept, but by doing that to your home, it really impacts your community. That's what the Esther's episode shows us. That's what a lot of these homes also, you can see that happening in other episodes too. You know, I think of Chris Brown and the Austin, you know, that literally was, I don't think it was a super fun site, but it was a toxic waste site where back in the 90s, people used to protest. It was this hideous place. And yet it's gorgeous. It's right by the Colorado River and East Austin. And there's this amazing neighborhood and all these people who live there. And by kind of taking that land, and he did build a beautiful home, and maybe not everybody can have a home that's as beautiful as Chris Brown and Augie, but it is a really, really gorgeous, amazing space. And it's kind of, you can, it sort of ripples out and it's spread to other lots and other places that they're now rejuvenating and able to kind of develop and in good ways that are good for the environment. So my point is it just ripples out. If you start with the core of you and your community, it's the larger community and then the city and then the country and it's the world. And it's the biggest thing I just don't want people to do is to watch home and go, oh, well, I can't afford, I don't, first of all, I, I don't need a greenhouse over my house. <laughs> you know, I live in an apartment in Brooklyn or something, right? Or, you know, oh, I can't afford a home quite as beautiful as maybe a few of the homes in this series. But they can, anybody watching this can say, oh, that's a cool idea. And they can apply the same kind of thinking. It's not like they need, I I can't do what Chris Brown did on my particular house right here, but I can definitely do it in the garden. I can definitely get the plants to be more sustainable and more ecologically friendly and attract better insects, which makes the soil better, which makes our garden better, which, you know, that's helping the entire neighborhood. And we can be intentional about what kind of life we want to live. 
Yeah, that's all. Yeah. So Aaron and I have kind of highlighted some of the threads that we saw across these films. And you both have had a career examining creative people and, and working with creative people. What are some of the common threads you see across disciplines with these creative type folks? I think all of them have hit rock bottom with their idea. And I know that's true for me personally in terms of my own films. Like I've never made a film that I'm proud of that I didn't at some point completely lose my way or not see the end. Because you get into you commit to something out of naivete. You're like, oh yeah, we can do all this stuff. And then there's inevitably a reality check in the middle of any creative process. I almost have come to believe in this. And if it doesn't happen, I start getting worried. <laughs> But the alternate is being in the middle of that and really hitting rock bottom and feeling like a loser and that you don't have any clue and that this was the worst idea you've ever come up with in your life. I don't mean to make light of it, but it kind of is crazy how every good script that my friend who's a screenwriter writes has this moment in that script that he's trying to write. Every film I've ever made, every edit, there's always a moment when it's like, God, this was a bad idea. And I think I see that in these creative people. I really think, I think architects go through that. I think, I think even contractors go through that. I think, you know, anybody who's doing stuff that takes a lot of resources and a lot of time, you wouldn't get into it if you knew what you're getting into. Doug, it's so funny. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever made anything while I'm making it going, oh my God, this is amazing. Again, surf wise and this, I think we were, we were passionate about what we were doing, but it wasn't like we were high-fiving along the way thinking this is incredible. Like Jiro turned the corner and even home at one point turned the corner. It had to find its way. So I'm glad you brought that up because I've never done anything where I, and I've had hits and misses and bombs and successes. I've had it all, but during any of them, I haven't thought, oh my God, this is amazing. No. And, and I agree. I, I think it's the same for all the homeowners as well. Seth Godin, who we just recently had on the podcast, was an author, calls that The Dip. He has a whole book about it called The Dip. And I'm kind of curious how... The Dip? How do you... I'm, I'm, yeah, The Dip, I'm sure. I, I'm curious how you see people, obviously stubbornness and resilience may be a part of it, but how do people push past that and you know bring their project to, into the world? It's, it's like that one foot in front of the other. It's like, I have no idea how the hell to get out of this, but I still got to finish this one little edit tonight. And then there's another thing I got to finish tomorrow. And, oh, I got to do that phone call tomorrow. You know, it's like, just stop thinking so damn much. Stop being so focused on yourself. My favorite quote of all time, I teach every so often, and it's like I always share this with my students. And it's been attributed to... President Dwight Eisenhower, but he didn't say it either. It was somebody before him. But it's this idea of take your job seriously, not yourself. And it's a really interesting thing because you can analyze it from many different angles. One, it implies kind of a humor, having humor and like, just don't be so damn serious about everything. Like, it's just whatever. It's just another show. It's just another film. It's just another house. It's like, you know, it's kind of almost a humble humility of like putting down what you're doing. Like, okay, it's just this right? Which can be healthy or unhealthy. But it also implies get out of your head and just do the work. Just do the work that's right in front of you. And so I I sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about. Like, oh yeah, this is what I do and this is how I get out of it. But if I'm down and I'm in that dip, which I've never heard it called, but I, I'm going to have to read that book. <laughs> but if I'm in the dip, I don't see it all the time. But I, it's kind of, I do think that that advice works a little bit. I think it helps just just do the job. Okay, one more brick, put on the, you know, 
bird by bird, just <laughs> just kind of next thing, next thing, next thing. It's like I have no idea how to get out of this, but I got to do this one thing. No, I've dipped three <laughs> times already today, and it's only uh, it's only eleven thirty. <laughs> but but yeah, but you're right. Every project kind of has that moment where it kind of turns. And they come in the, sometimes in the middle, sometimes at the end, sometimes after a major dip. And every so often, there's projects that actually you don't continue. I mean, and those are things that you regret later. You go, wow, I can't believe I didn't finish this film or we couldn't do it. Or, or you know, the circumstances really did change and I had to make a tougher, harder decision. I hate that. It's much better to kind of climb through it and then look, have something you're proud of and look back and say, wow, we almost gave up on this. I'm really glad we didn't. Another thing that we saw in the various episodes was working with what you have on hand. I've heard designers, artists, creative people talk about the blank canvas effect, which is when you have all possibilities, it's hard to get started and and have momentum. But there's something really elegant and freeing about having limitations. That these are the things I have. I have an idea. I'm going to work within these constraints. With the Astor Gates, you know, he didn't have art supplies. He had roofing tar because he and his dad were roofers. In Bali, it's like, well, we've got a lot of bamboo. We don't have a lot of hardwoods to work with. So like, (laughs) this is what I got. So what can I do with what I have? And those constraints actually lead to new creative ideas. It pushes you in directions that were unanticipated wonder if you saw that in the series as well, constraints, and how that's manifested in your creative lives too. It's funny, when we were going through like the checklist, Doug, you remember in the beginning of the show, like every episode to have, you know, they had to help community. It had to be architecturally stunning. There had to be something about it. Constraints was never on there. And as you were saying that, Aaron, I was almost thinking that's a good checklist for if, if we're lucky enough to have a season two. Uh, and maybe inevitably everybody had it and we were just bound to be drawn to people that had constraints. The people that you started looking for, Matt, in the beginning, I feel like there has to be something good <laughs> for the world. There has to be something. We're not looking at stories where people are just landing somewhere, totally extracting resources or just bringing in stuff from the outside and just forcing something. You know what I mean? Like a golf course in the middle of the desert. It's this that's the exact opposite of the kind of thinking we're talking about, which brings in the limitations of like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm in the jungle. There's a lot of bamboo or I'm here in this community in India and this, these are the workers and the crafts and the materials we have to work with. Or, you know, again, you could go through all these different episodes. I love that idea of limits. I, th- I think it's essential. That's what documentarians do. That's all we do. We, we only use existing footage. Even if we shot it, it's sort of like, well, you're stuck with that. That's what you got. That's the interview. You have to make it work with that interview. That's why I can't write screenplays because it's just the sky's the limit. You could come up with anything. And it just completely paralyzes me. You know, like if I'm, if like the, the few times I ever try to write a screenplay, it's like, okay, it's Thursday. No, it's Wednesday. Oh, let's say it's Monday morning. Let's say it's sunny. Oh, no, it's raining. I can't stand that. I need to know that it's only raining and it's only Thursday at 2.34 p.m. And that's it. And it's like, give me that stuff. And I think all these people are very creative with what they have in front of them. I've never thought limits were bad. I think they're fantastic. It's whatever. Give you a piece of wood and a carving knife and you can. <laughs> that's it. It's freeing. Yeah, I think it's freeing. Well, because you... 
Because otherwise, it is sort of silly. You can kind of do anything. You, you can do almost anything on this planet if you have resources. It's just, but that's not the that's not the goal. There's something larger going on with all of these dreams. It's not that they're do-gooders. It's not just that. It's not that this is just an environmental show. It's that they're thinking long term about better ways of living. It's a it's a richer way of life that's not as money based as it might appear. There's this idea that we we hinted at earlier about living an intentional life, and certainly you can you can kind of bring design skills to that. The colleague of mine that I teach with, Bill Burnett, co-authored a book called Designing Your Life, and a new one called Designing Your Work Life. It's all about this idea of sort of intentionally sitting down and thinking about the directions your life could take. And I'm curious how you both think about that in your own lives and how some of your subjects see that, you know, bring about that intentionality into the way that they live their lives. That's too deep for me. You go, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) I just experienced another dip. I'm sorry, guys. I'm dipping now. (laughs) I think I would kind of say the same thing I was just talking about. This, This idea of living an intentional life, it sounds like a lot of hard work. That actually sounds like a really boring assignment. Like, you are going to be intentional and everything you do is going to be right. And that just sounds like, oh, my God, I don't think anybody can live under that weight. But I know that's not the intention of that idea either. There's a beauty and a simplicity in how all nine of these characters, and again, there's more, it's not just one character per show. Each episode is rather different. But there is an intention to live a better life, to live a richer life, to live a life where your home isn't just a home that you're sitting inside, that it's actually giving back to you. And I think we've all experienced that. We've all been in spaces and places where you feel different, where you feel inspired, or you feel better, whether it's a restaurant or a, a place in nature or your home or a person or a particular place in your home where you just feel there's something good happening here. And Doug, don't you think most of these people, they don't have to do this. Gary Chang could have had a big house somewhere, or Alora could move to New York and have an apartment somewhere. Like, I think most of the subject matters, they didn't have to do this. I'm not saying their their life was incredibly hard, but they could have definitely taken a path of least resistance, I think. So that's interesting to me. They, none of them had to do that. The Astrogates didn't have to do that at all. Right. It's bigger picture. It's just, it's, they all had dreams of something new and different. So they are inspiring stories. That's all we want the series to do is people to watch this and get inspired. It could be just the tiniest, tiniest level like, oh, I'm going to move my house plants around today. But if it does that, that's actually kind of good. We do need it. You know, it's funny, the timing of this. We haven't talked about the yet, but the timing of this show, Apple TV Plus premiered it on April 17th, which was dead center in the middle of kind of the height of coronavirus quarantine in the United States. It still is, but, you know, things are getting a, a little more fractured now in terms of our understanding of coronavirus, it seems. But that was just at the height of everybody dealing with their homes, living, sitting in their homes, staying in their homes, starting to look at their homes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this series called Home comes out. And it's been really interesting, the timing. I, I think it's impacted the reaction people have had to it because they're in a more thoughtful, more shuttered-in space. And we're more reflective right now about our life and where we are in our life and the things that are really great things that we already have on hand. We're shopping from our pantries instead of going to the grocery store. This is a time in human history where we're operating within great constraints and yet finding a lot of beauty and a lot of meaning in life, uh, finding our way together. 
So if you have not, those listening, if you have not seen Home, I can't recommend it enough. It's a really inspiring series that I think regardless of your creative endeavors, I think it can help you reconnect with that as it did for me, see it in uh, a new light. Certainly a better alternative than watching the news right now. So I really enjoyed that greatly and learned so much. So Doug Prey and Matt Weaver, thank you so much for joining us today on the uh, Design Better podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. 